8. Wrote plays, verses, essays, pamphlets, everything that he penned was widely read, amid storms of opposition and cries of bravo, continually making friends, he moved steadily forward, men like Victor Hugo can be killed or they may be banished, but they cannot be bought, neither can they be intimidated into silence, he resigned his pension and boldly expressed himself in his own way, he knew history by heart and toyed with it, politics was his delight, but it is a mistake to call him a statesman, he was bold to rashness, impulsive, impatient and vehement, because a man is great is no reason why he should be proclaimed perfect, such men as Victor Hugo need no veneer the truth will answer, he would explode a keg of powder to kill a fly, he was an agitator, but these zealous souls are needed not to govern nor to be blindly followed, but rather to make other men think for themselves, yet to do this in a monarchy is not safe, the years passed, and the time came for either Hugo or royalty to go, France was not large enough for both, it proved to be Hugo, a bounty of 25,000 francs was offered for his body, dead or alive, through a woman's devotion he escaped to Brussels, he was driven from there to Jersey, then to Guernsey, it was 19 years before he returned to Paris years of banishment, but years of glory, exiled by fate that he might do his work, each day a steamer starts from Southampton for Guernsey, Alderney and Jersey, these are names known to countless farmers boys the wide world over, you cannot mistake the Channel Island boats they smell like a county fair, and though you be blind and deaf it is impossible to board the wrong craft, every time one of these staunch little steamers lands in England, crates containing mild-eyed, lusty calves are slid down the gangplank, marked for Maine, Iowa, California, or some uttermost part of the earth, there his ship worth his weight in gold is going to found a kingdom, I stood on the dock watching the bovine passengers disembark, and furtively listened the while to an animated argument between two rather rough-looking, red-faced men, clothed in corduroys and carrying long, stout staffs, mixed up in their conversation I caught the names of royalty, then of celebrities great, and artists famous warriors, orators, philanthropists and musicians, could it be possible that these rustics were poets, it must be so, and there came to me thoughts of Thoreau, Walt Whitman, Joaquin Miller, and all that sublime company of singers in short sleeves, suddenly the wine veered and the veil fell, all the sacred names so freely bandied about were those of families with mighty milk records, when we went on board and the good ship was slipping down the Solent, I made the acquaintance of these men and was regaled with more cow talk than I had heard since I left Texas, we saw the island of Portsea, where Dickens was born, and got a glimpse of the spires of Portsmouth as we passed, then came the Isle of Wight and the quaint town of Cowes. I made a bright joke on the latter place as it was pointed out to me by my Jersey friend, but it went for naught. A pleasant sail of eight hours and the towering cliffs of Guernsey came in sight. Foam dashed and spray covered they rise right out of the sea at the south, to the height of 270 feet. About them great flocks of seafowl hover, swirl and soar, wild, rugged and romantic is the scene. The Isle of Guernsey is nine miles long and six wide. Its principal town is St. Peter Port, a place of about 16,000 inhabitants, where a full dozen hotel porters meet the incoming steamer and struggle for your baggage. Hotels and boarding houses here are numerous and good. Guernsey is a favorite resort for invalids and those who desire to flee the busy world for a space. In fact, the author of Les Miserables has made exile popular.
Emerging from my hotel at St. Peter Port I was accosted by a small edition of Gavroche, all in tatters, who proposed showing me the way to Otaville House for a penny. I already knew the route, but accepted the author on Gavroche's promise to reveal to me a secret about the place. The secret is this, the house is haunted, and when the wind is east, and the setting moon shows only a narrow rim above the rocks, ghosts come and dance a solemn minuet on the glass roof above the study. Had Gavroche ever seen them? Remember but he knew a boy who had, years and years ever so many years ago long before there were any steamboats, and when only a schooner came to Guernsey once a week, a woman was murdered in Otaville House, her ghost came back with other ghosts and drove the folks away, so the big house remained vacant save for the spooks, who paid no rent, then after a great, long time Victor Hugo came and lived in the house, the ghosts did not bother him, faith. They had been keeping the place just a purpose for him. He rented the house first, and liked it so well that he bought it got it at half price on account of the ghosts. Here, every Christmas, Victor Hugo gave a big dinner in the Great Oak Hall to all the children in Guernsey, hundreds of them all the way from babies that could barely creep, to boys with whiskers. They were all fed on turkey, tarts, apples, oranges and figs, and when they went away, each was given a bag of candy to take home. Climbing a narrow, crooked street we came to the great, dark, gloomy edifice situated at the top of a cliff. The house was painted black by some strange whim of a former occupant. We will leave it so, said Victor Hugo, Liberty is dead, and we are in mourning for her. But the gloom of Otaville House is only on the outside. Within all is warm and homelike. The furnishings are almost as the poet left them and the marks of his individuality are on every side. In the outer hall stands an elegant column of carved oak, its panels showing scenes from The Hunchback. In the dining room there is fantastic wainscoting with plagues and porcelain tiles inlaid here and there. Many of these ornaments were presents, sent by unknown admirers in all parts of the world. In Le Miserables there is a chance line revealing the author's love for the beautiful as shown in the grain of woods. The result was an influx of polished panels. Slabs, chips, hewings, carvings, and in one instance a log sent, collect, samples of redwood, ebony, calamander, hemimelis, cerdany, tamarind, satinwood, mahogany, walnut, maples of many kinds and oaks without limit all or there. A mammoth axe helve I noticed on the wall was labeled, shagbark hickory from Missouri. These specimens of wood were sometimes made up into hatracks, chairs, canes, or panels for doors and are seen in odd corners of these rambling rooms. Charles Hugo once facetiously wrote to a friend, We have bought no kindling for three years. At another time he writes, Father still is sure he can sketch and positive he can carve. He has several jackknives, and whittles names, dates and emblems on sticks and furniture we tremble for the piano. In the dining room, I noticed a huge oaken chair fastened to the wall with a chain. On the mantel was a statuette of the Virgin, on the pedestal Victor Hugo had engraved lines speaking of her as, Freedom's Goddess. This dining room affords a sunny view out into the garden, on this floor are also a reception room, library and a smoking room. On the next floor are various sleeping apartments, and two cozy parlors, known respectively as the Red Room and the Blue. Both are rich in curious draperies, a little more pronounced in color than some folks admire. The next floor contains the Oak Gallery, a ballroom we should call it. Five large windows furnish a flood of light. In the center of this fine room is an enormous candelabrum with many branches. At the top a statue of wood, 
the whole carved by Victor Hugo's own hands. The Oak Gallery is a regular museum of curiosities of every sort books, paintings, carvings, busts, firearms, musical instruments. A long glass case contains a large number of autograph letters from the world's celebrities, written to Hugo in exile. At the top of the house and built on its flat roof is the most interesting apartment of Otaville House the study and workroom of Victor Hugo. Three of its sides and the roof are of glass. The floor, too, is one immense slab of sea green glass. Sliding curtains worked by pulleys cut off the light as desired. More light, more light, said the great man again and again. He gloried and reveled in the sunshine. Here, in the winter, with no warmth but the sun's rays, his eyes shaded by his felt hat, he wrote, all was standing at a shelf fixed in the wall. On this shelf were written all, the toilers, the man who laughs, Shakespeare, and much of, Glen Miserables. The leaves of manuscript were numbered and fell on the floor, to remain perhaps four days before being gathered up. When Victor Hugo went to Guernsey he went to liberty, not to banishment. He arrived at Hotaville House poor in purse and broken in health. Here the fire of his youth came back, and his pen retrieved the fortune that royalty had confiscated. The forenoons were given to earnest work. The daughter composed music, the sons translated Shakespeare and acted as their father's faithful helpers. Madame Hugo collected the notes of her husband's life and cheerfully looked after her household affairs. Several hours of each afternoon were given to romp and play, the evenings were sacred to music reading and conversation. Horace Greeley was once a prisoner in Paris. From his cell he wrote, The same theater who holds the keys of this place has kindly locked the world out, and for once, thank heaven, I am free from intrusion. Lovers of truth must thank exile for some of our richest and ripest literature. Exile is not all exile. Imagination cannot be imprisoned. Amid the winding bastions of the brain, thought roams free and entrammeled. Liberty is only a comparative term, and Victor Hugo at Guernsey enjoyed a thousand times more freedom than ever a ruling monarch knew. Standing at the shelf desk where this gentleman of France stood for so many happy hours, I inscribed my name in the visitor's book. I thanked the good woman who had shown me the place, and told me so much of interest thanked her in words that seemed but a feeble echo of all that my heart would say. I went down the stairs out at the great carved doorway and descended the well-worn steps. Perched on a crag waiting for me was little Devroche, his rags fluttering in the breeze. He offered to show me the great stone chair where Gilead sat when the tide came up and carried him away. And did I want to buy a bull calf? Devroche knew where there was a fine one that could be bought cheap. Devroche would show me both the calf and the stone chair for threepence. I accepted the offer, and we went down the stony street toward the sea. Hand in hand, on the 28th day of June, 1894, I took my place in the long line and passed slowly through the Pantheon at Paris and viewed the body of President Carnot. The same look of proud dignity that I had seen in life was there calm, composed, serene. The inanimate clay was clothed in the simple black of a citizen of the Republic, the only mark of office being the red silken sash that covered the spot in the breast where the stiletto stroke of hate had gone home. Amid bursts of applause, surrounded by loving friends and loyal adherents, he was stricken down and passed out into the unknown, happy fate, to die before the fickle populace had taken up a new idol, to step in an instant beyond the reach of malice to leave behind the self-seekers that pursue, the hungry horde that follows, the zealots who defame, 
to escape the dagger thrust of calumny and receive only the glittering steel that at the same time wrote his name indelibly on the roll of honor. Carnot, thrice happy thou, thy name is secure on history's page, and thy dust now resting beneath the dome of the Pantheon is bedewed with the tears of thy countrymen. Saint Genevieve, the patron saint of Paris, died in 512. She was buried on a hilltop, the highest point in Paris, on the left bank of the Seine. Over the grave was erected a chapel which for many years was a shrine for the faithful. This chapel with its additions remained until 1750, when a church was designed which in beauty of style and solidity of structure has rarely been equaled. The object of the architect was to make the most enduring edifice possible, and still not sacrifice proportion. Louis XV laid the cornerstone of this church in 1764 and in 1790 the edifice was dedicated by the Roman Catholics with great pomp, but the spirit of revolution was at work, and in one year after, a mob sacked this beautiful building, burned its pews, destroyed its altar, and wrought havoc with its ecclesiastical furniture. The convention converted the structure into a memorial temple, inscribing on its front the words, Ox grands homes lo patere reconnaissant, and they named the building the Pantheon, in 1806. The Catholics had gotten such influence with the government that the building was restored to them. After the revolution of 1830, the Church of St. Genevieve was again taken from the priests. It was held until 1851, when the Romanists in the assembly succeeded in having it again reconsecrated. In the meantime, many of the great men of France had been buried there. The first interment in the Pantheon was Mirabeau. Next came Marostad while in the bath by Charlotte Corday. Both bodies were removed by order of the convention when the church was given back to Rome. In the Pantheon, the visitor now sees the elaborate tombs of Voltaire and Rousseau. In the dim twilight he reads the glowing inscriptions, and from the tomb of Rousseau he sees the hand thrust forth bearing a torch but the bones of these men are not here. While rogue priests chanted the litany, as the great organ pealed, and swinging censers gave off their perfume, visitors came, bringing children and they stopped at the arches where Rousseau and Voltaire slept side by side, and they said, it is here, and so the dust of infidel greatness seemed to interfere with the rites. A change was made, let Victor Hugo tell, one night in May, 1814, about two o'clock in the morning, a cab stopped near the city gate of Loguer at an opening in a board fence. This fence surrounded a large, vacant piece of ground belonging to the city of Paris. The cab had come from the Pantheon and the coachman had been ordered to take the most deserted streets. Three men alighted from the cab and crawled into the enclosure, to carry a sack between them. Other men, some in cassocks, awaited them. They proceeded towards a hole dug in the middle of the field. At the bottom of the hole was quicklime. These men said nothing. They had no lanterns. The one daybreak gave a ghastly light. The sack was opened. It was full of bones. These were the bones of Jean Jacks and of Voltaire which had been withdrawn from the pantheon. The mouth of the sack was brought close to the hole, and the bones rattled down into that black pit. The two skulls struck against each other, a spark, not likely to be seen by those standing near, was doubtless exchanged between the head that made the philosophical dictionary and the head that made the social contract. When that was done, when the sack was shaken, when Voltaire and Rousseau had been emptied into that hole, a digger seized a spade, threw into the opening the heap of earth, and filled up the grave, the others stamped with their feet upon the ground, so as to remove from it the appearance of having been freshly disturbed, 
One of the assistants took for his trouble the sack as the hangman takes the clothing of his victim they left the enclosure, got into the cab without saying a word, and, hastily, before the sun had risen, these men got away. The ashes of the man who wrote these vivid words now rest next to the empty tombs of Voltaire and Rousseau, but a step away is the grave of City Carnot. When the visitor is conducted to the crypt of the Pantheon, he is first taken to the tomb of Victor Hugo. The sarcophagus on each side is draped with the red, white and blue of France and the stars and stripes of America. With uncovered heads, we behold the mass of flowers and wreaths, and our minds go back to 1885, when the body of the chief citizen of Paris lay in state at the Pantheon and 500,000 people passed by and laid the tribute of silence or of tears on his bier. The Pantheon is now given over as a memorial to the men of France who have enriched the world with their lives. Over the portals of this beautiful temple are the words, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité. Across its floors of rarest mosaic echo only the feet of pilgrims and those of the courteous and kindly old soldiers who have the place in charge. On the walls color revels in beautiful paintings, and in the niches and on the pedestals is marble that speaks of greatness which lives in lives made better. The history of the Pantheon is one of strife. As late as 1870 the Commune made it a stronghold and the streets on every side were called upon to contribute their paving stones for a barricade. Yet it seems neat that Victor Hugo's dust should lie here amid the scenes he loved and knew, and where he struggled, worked, toiled, achieved, from whence he was banished, and to which he returned in triumph, to receive at last the complete approbation so long withheld, certainly not in the quiet of a mossy graveyard, nor in a church where priests mumble unmeaning words at fixed times nor yet alone on the mountainside for he chafed at solitude but he should have been buried at sea, in the midst of storm and driving sleet, at midnight, the sails should have been lowered, the great engines stopped, and with no requiem but the sobbing of the night wind and the sighing of the breeze through the shrouds, and the moaning of the waves as they surged about the great, black ship, the plank should have been run out, and the body wrapped in the red, white and blue of the republic, the sea, the infinite mother of all, beloved and sung by him, should have taken his tired form to her arms, and there he would rest, if not this, then the pantheon, W.M., Wordsworth even such a shell the universe itself is to the ear of faith, and there are times, I doubt not, when to you it doth impart authentic tidings of invisible things, of ebb and flow and ever during power, and central peace subsisting at the heart of endless agitation, here you stand, adore and worship, when you know it not, pious beyond the intention of your thought, devout above the meaning of your will. Wordsworth someone has told us that heaven is not a place but a condition of mind, and it is possible that he is right. But if heaven is a place, surely it is not in like Grasmere. Such loveliness of landscape such sylvan stretches of crystal water peace and quiet and rest. Great, green hills lift their heads to the skies, and all the old stone walls and hedgerows are covered with trailing vines and blooming flowers. The air is rich with song of birds, sweet with perfume, and the blossoms gaily shower their petals on the passerby. Overhead, white, billowy clouds float lazily over their background of ethereal blue. Cool June breezes fan the cheek. Distant knolls are dotted with flocks of sheep whose bells tinkle dreamily, and drowsy hum of beetle makes the bass. While lark song forms the air of the sweet symphony that nature plays. Such was Grassmere as I first saw it. To love the plain homely, common, simple things of earth, of these to sing, to make the familiar beautiful and the commonplace enchanting, 
to cause each bush to burn with the actual presence of the living God, this is the poet's office. And if the poet lives near Grassmere, his task does not seem difficult. From 1799 to 1808, Wordsworth lived at Dove Cottage, thanks to a few earnest souls. The place is now secured to the people of England and the lovers of poetry wherever they may be. A good old woman has charge of the cottage, and for a slight fee shows you the house and garden and little orchard and objects of interest, all the while talking, and you are glad, for, although a leopard, she is reverent and honest, she was born here, and all she knows is Wordsworth and the people and the things he loved, is not this enough, here Wordsworth lived before anything he wrote was published in book form, here his best work was done, and here Dorothy splendid, sympathetic Dorothy was inspiration, critic, friend, but who inspired Dorothy, Coleridge perhaps more than all others, and we know somewhat of their relationship as told in Dorothy's diary, there is a little Wordsworth library in Dove Cottage, and I sat at the window of De Quincey's room and read for an hour, says Dorothy, Saturday until four o'clock reading dear Coleridge's letters, we paced the garden until moonrise at one o'clock we three, brother, Coleridge and I, I read Spencer to him aloud and then we had a midnight tea, here in this little, terraced garden, behind the stone cottage with its low ceilings and wide window seats and little, diamond panes, she in her misery wrote, oh, the pity of it all, yet there is recompense, every sight reminds me of Coleridge, dear, dear fellow, of our walks and talks by day and night, of all the bright and witty, and sad sweet things of which we spoke and read, I was melancholy and could not talk, and at last I eased my heart by weeping. Alas, too often there is competition between brother and sister. Then follow misunderstandings, but here the brotherly and sisterly love stands out clear and strong after these hundred years have passed, and we contemplate it with delight. Was ever woman more honestly and better praised than Dorothy? The blessings of my later years were with me when I was a boy. She gave me eyes. She gave me ears and humble cares and gentle fears, a heart, the fountain of sweet tears, and love and thought and joy, and she hath smiles to earth and own, smiles that with motion of their own do spread and sink and rise, that come and go with endless play, and ever as they pass away are hidden in her eyes, and so in a dozen or more poems, we see Dorothy reflected, she was the steel on which he tried his flint, everything he wrote was read to her, then she read it alone, Balancing the sentences in the delicate scales of her womanly judgment. Heart of my heart, is this well done? When she said, this will do. It was no matter who said otherwise. Back of the house on the rising hillside is the little garden. Hewn out of the solid rock is Dorothy's seat. There I rested while Mrs. Dixon discoursed of poet lore, and told me of how, many times, Coleridge and Dorothy had sat in the same seat and watched the stars. Then I drank from the well which is more properly a spring, the stones that curb it were are placed in their present position by the hand that wrote, the prelude, above the garden is the orchard, where the green linnet still sings, for the birds never grow old, there, too, are the circling swallows, and in a snug little alcove of the cottage you can read, the butterfly, from a first edition, and then you can go sit in the orchard, white with blossoms, and see the butterflies that suggested the poem, and if your eye is good you can discover down by the lakeside the daffodils, and listen the while to the cuckoo call, then in the orchard you can see not only, the daisy, but many of them, and, if you wish, Mrs. Dixon will let you dig a bunch of the daisies to take back to America, and if you do, 
I hope that yours will prosper as have mine, and that Wordsworth's flowers, like Wordsworth's verse, will gladden your heart when the blue sky of your life threatens to be o'ercast with grey. Here Salvi came, and Felibur was read aloud in this little garden. Here, too, came Clarkson, the man with a fine feminine carelessness. As Dorothy said, Charles Lloyd sat here and discoursed with William Calvert. Sir George Moment forgot his title and rapped often at the quaint, hinged door. An artist was Moment, but his best picture they say is not equal to the lines that words were thrown about it. Sir George was not only a gentleman according to law, but one in heart, for he was a friend, kind, gentle and generous. With such a friend Wordsworth was rich indeed, but perhaps the friends we have are only our other selves, and we get what we deserve. We must not forget the kindly face of Humphrey Davy, whose gracious playfulness was ever a charm to the Wordsworths. The safety lamp was then only an unspoken word, and perhaps few foresaw the sweetness and light that these two men would yet give to earth. Walter Scott and his wife came to Dove Cottage in 1805. He did not bring his title, for it, like Humphrey Davies, was as yet unpacked down in London town. They slept in the little cubby hole of a room in the upper southwest corner. One can imagine Dorothy taking Sir Walter's shaving water up to him in the morning, and the savory smell of breakfast as Mistress Mary poured the tea. While England's future laureate served the toast and eggs, Mr. Scott eating everything in sight and talking a torrent the while about art and philosophy as he passed his cup back, to the consternation of the hostess, whose frugal ways were not used to such ravages of appetite. Of course she did not know that a combined novelist and rhymester ate twice as much as a simple poet. Afterwards Mrs. Scott tucked up her dress, putting on one of Dorothy's aprons, and helped do the dishes. Then Coleridge came over and they all climbed to the summit of Helm Crag. Shy little De Quincey had read some of Wordsworth's poems, and knew from their flavor that the man who penned them was a noble soul. He came to Grasmere to call on him, he walked past Dove Cottage twice, but his heart failed him and he went away unannounced. Later, he returned and found the occupants as simple folks as himself. Happiness was there and good society, few books, but fine culture, plain living and high thinking. Wordsworth lived at Rival Mount for 33 years. Yet the sweetest flowers of his life blossomed at Dove Cottage, for difficulty, toil, struggle, obscurity, poverty, mixed with aspiration and ambition all these were here, success came later, but this is not, for the achievement is more than the public acknowledgement of the deed, after Wordsworth moved away, De Quincey rented Dove Cottage and lived in it for 27 years, he acquired a library of more than 5,000 volumes making bookshelves on four sides of the little rooms from floor to ceiling. Some of these shelves still remain. Here he turned night into day and dreamed the dreams of the opium eater. And all these are some of the things that Mrs. Dixon told me on that bright summer day. What if I had heard them before? No difference. Dear old lady, I salute you and at your feet I lay my gratitude for a day of rare and quiet joy. Farewell, thou little nook of mountain ground. Now rocky corner in the lowest stair of that magnificent temple which does bound one side of our whole vale with gardens rare, sweet garden orchard, eminently fair, the loveliest spot that man has ever found. Farewell, we leave thee to heaven's peaceful care, be, and the cottage which thou dost surround, at places of pleasure and entertainment in the far west, are often found functionaries known as bouncers. It is the duty of the bouncer to give hints to objectionable visitors that their presence is not desired. 
and inasmuch as there are many men who can never take a hint without a kick, the bouncer is a person selected on account of his peculiar fitness psychic and otherwise for the place. We all have special talents, and these faculties should be used in a manner that will help our fellow men on their way. My acquaintanceship with the bouncer has been only general, not particular, yet I have admired him from a distance, and the skill and eclat that he sometimes shows in a professional way has often excited my admiration. In social usages, America borrows constantly from the mother country, but like all borrowing it seems to be one-sided, for seldom, very, very seldom, in point of etiquette and manners does England borrow from us, yet there are exceptions. It is a beautiful highway that skirts Lake Windermere and follows up through Emblisside. We get a glimpse of the old home of Harriet Martineau, and Foxhouse, the home of Matthew Arnold. Just before Rival Water is reached comes Rival Road, running straight up the hillside, off from the turnpike. Rival Mount is the third house upon the left-hand side. I knew the location, for I had read of it many times, and in my pocketbook I carried a picture taken from an old Frank Leslie's showing the house, my heart beat fast as I climbed the hill, to visit the old home of one who was poet laureate of England is no small event in the life of a book lover, I was full of poetry and murmured lines from, the excursion, as I walked, soon rear old rival mount came in sight among the wealth of green, I stopped and sighed, yes, yes, Wordsworth lived here for thirty-three years, and here he died, the spot where I then stood had been pressed many times by his feet, I walked slowly, with uncovered head, and approached the gate. It was locked. I fumbled at the latch, and just as there came a prospect of its opening, a loud, deep, guttural voice dashed over me like a wave. There you, now, what you want? The owner of this voice was not ten feet away, but he was standing up close to the wall and I had not seen him. I was somewhat startled at first. The man did not move. I stepped to one side to get a better view of my interlocutor, and saw him to be a large, red man of perhaps fifty. A handkerchief was knotted around his thick neck, and he held a heavy hoe in his hand. A genuine beef eater he was, only he ate too much beef and the ale he drank was evidently extra XXX. His scowl was so needlessly severe and his manner so belligerent that I thrice armed, knowing my cause was just could not restrain a smile. I touched my head and said, God. Excuse me, Mr. Falstaff, you are the bouncer? Never mind what I am, sir oh, are you? I am a great admirer of Wordsworth, that's the way they all begins. Can't ye admire I am on that side of the wall as well as this? There is no use of wasting argument with a man of this stamp, besides that, 